Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Take your Bible if you would, open it to Matthew 24. We are going to be in Genesis 6. We're looking at failure, favor, and the flood. But we're going to start off with a couple of New Testament passages, and they will be found in Matthew 24. As we uh, move in from Genesis 5 to Genesis 6, we remember that Genesis 5 was this incredible list of names, and we're kind of going through the list of names, and we looked at Enoch's exit, and then we saw this incredible message emerge in Genesis 5 from the names of the Sethite line, and we found the message, man appointed mortal sorrow The blessed God shall come down teaching his death, shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. That's on this sheet on the information counter inside if you wanted. Some of you mentioned that you wanted a copy of this, so if you want a hard copy, that's where it is. An incredible message um, right there within the the genealogical names in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch was the primary guy that we focused on, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And he had a testimony recorded in Hebrews 11 that he lived a life that was pleasing to God. I heard another pastor say, we need to live out what we're trying to give out. We need to live out what we're trying to give out. Your life is a powerful testimony. It's not the only testimony. The Word of God is the most powerful testimony of all. But if our lives don't, at least in some sense, line up with the Word of God, then we lose our witness. Enoch's witness was he lived a life pleasing to God. And I asked you last week to maybe take a look at your own walk and ask the question, is that true of me? Am I trying to live out what I want to give out? Or are you even bothering to try to give out the gospel? That's what we should be doing, especially in light of this particular passage, because this passage is going to take us literally into some deep and debated waters, pun intended, pun intended, because we're going to look at Noah's Ark. We're going to ask some questions like, was there really a worldwide flood? Was there really a Noah's Ark? I know we've seen the Ark in all the Sunday school rooms with the animals smiling so wonderfully and all of that. But is that story really true? You know it's debated. You know that there are people who do not believe there was a worldwide flood. They believe things like the Grand Canyon were created by a river running uphill for millions of years. Yeah, right. But the Bible teaches there was actually a cataclysmic judgment of God. And that judgment came in response to the degeneration of mankind. And Jesus makes some comments about the days of Noah, and he says the days of Noah are going to parallel the days just prior to his return. Let's pray. Father, as we look at failure, your favor, and the flood, we look at Noah, a man who really spoke to his generation, not only as a preacher of righteousness, but What he built was so amazing and so incredible and such an act of faith that he condemned the rest of the the world by his act of faith. Noah's life is about faith. 
faith is something that's so important, Lord. In fact, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Enoch pleased you. Noah pleased you. We want to be people that please you in a generation that is sliding quickly away from its foundations, Lord. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. I will add, Lord, that none of us are adequate for these things. We all realize our inadequacies. So we just pray that you'll meet us where we are this morning and fill us with your spirit and make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. We lay this time at your feet and pray you'll speak to us powerfully. In Jesus' name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 24, verse 3, it says he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, 3. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew 24, 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Skip down to verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs, Matthew 24, 24, and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold... I have told you in advance. Skip down to verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Mark that in your Bible. For as in those days which were before the flood, apparently Jesus believed in the flood. You know, whenever I'm asking questions about theology in the Bible, I begin to ask questions like, well, where else is this confirmed? And what did Jesus say about this? And And pray tell, Jesus believed that there was a flood. And he compared the time of his second coming to conditions that were in the world at the time of the flood. He said, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days which were before the flood, 38, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, and the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Skip to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke 17. Luke records these words from Jesus. Again, regarding the days of Noah. Luke 17. Look at verse uh, 26 with me. Luke 17, 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, Luke 17, 27. They were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Would you go back to Genesis chapter 6? Genesis chapter 6. Jesus draws parallels between the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and the return of Jesus Christ. And what he talks about is people 
being married, given in marriage, people eating and drinking, people buying and selling, people building. And those are all things that we would say are normal activities. In fact, I would argue that the text is really saying that people were about business as usual until the day that Noah entered the ark, the very day they were still up to it, and until the day that it rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says it will be just that day at the coming, uh, just that way at the coming of the Son of Man. Here's my point. It is easy for people to ignore the signs of the times. It is easy to stay in a bubble of your own personal space, your own worries, your own concerns, and ignore what's going on in the world. Ignore the signs of the times. And that has been man's tendency from early on in the history of mankind. We, we can tend to kind of just you know, isolate ourselves and think about our own little world until our own little world is affected by what's going on. Then it becomes personal. Like the story of the pastor is in his office and he tells his secretary, I don't want to be bothered. I'm trying to study. Don't bother me with anything. And the phone rings and it's the secretary. and He's all mad, the pastor. I thought I told you not to bother me. And she said, there's been an accident out in front of the church. I just thought you'd want to know. I told you don't bother me. Your daughter was involved in the accident. Your daughter was hit. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is saying we've got to pay attention. The, the times of Genesis 6 and Genesis 19, 18 and 19, which we'll study later, are indicative of the signs of the times. Now, many of you believe the signs of the times for the second coming. Many of you believe that we're moving rapidly towards that time. So if that is true, we should start to look around and ask, are we seeing parallels to the days of Noah? In order to find that out, we've got to know what was going on in the days of Noah. What did the world look like? What was going on? One writer said marriage was being demonized, and that could be literally. Life was being shortened, and violence was being idolized. Now, Genesis 6 records these words, and we're only going to go up to verse 8 this morning. Now, it came about, Genesis 6, 1, when men, that's ha-adam, that's a basic Description of the human race began to multiply. So rapid population increased, Genesis 6.1, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God, this phrase is bene ha Elohim, and sons of God uh, is actually rendered in the Septuagint, which is the, the ancient translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was finished between 300 and 250 B.C., it was done by 70 top-notch Jewish scholars. And they render this particular section as angels. So the sons of God, they've got as angels in the Septuagint. The sons of God saw the daughters, that the daughters of men were beautiful. Notice there's a contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of men. The daughters of men is Banath Adam. It's, a, again, a general term. It's not really specifying a line. It's just saying daughters were born to mankind. And these sons of God, whoever they were and are, and we should note here, and I think many of you know this, that this is a controversial passage in terms of what does this really mean? Who are these sons of God? 
Well, the sons of God saw, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives. The word for wives is Isha. It's a general word for woman, but it also can speak of a wife. They took wives for themselves whom they chose. The Hebrew implies that the ladies didn't have much choice in the matter. So as Genesis 6 opens up and we begin to look at the days of Noah, we find this interesting, intriguing, and debated section where these sons of God see the daughters of men and they take wives, and the wives are plural, which implies polygamy. One major view of this particular section is that the sons of God are dynastic rulers of the day, an early royal aristocracy, and that what they're doing is taking women as they want them and creating harems early on in man's history. And they are just kind of doing what they want to do and they're practicing polygamous relationships. And that's one view. A second view is that the sons of God, verse 2, are the godly Sethites, which we saw in chapter 5. The daughters of men are ungodly Canaanites. So that the sin here that's being committed is that the godly line of Seth is marrying with the ungodly line of Cain. And we know later in the Bible, it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so the sin is this godly line is now being defiled or corrupted by the ungodly line of Cain. That's a very major uh, acceptable view in orthodoxy. And in fact, it's the more intellectually palatable view. In fact, if I had my choice, I would choose that view because it makes sense. It's, it fits with you know normal kind of life stuff. But there's a third view here, and the third view is the oldest and was widely embraced uh, throughout really church history. In fact, the Septuagint translates sons of God as angeloi tau feu, which speaks of angels. And sons of God, when it's used in three other places in the book of Job, this is Job 1.6.2.1 and 38.7. Job 1.6.2.1 and 38.7. The only other places you'll see it in the Old Testament, the sons of God are angels. And so what is going on here is that many ancient, what's called ancient exegetes who interpreted Scripture, believe that what's going on here is that angels somehow got involved with human women. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? It almost sounds like some of the mythology of demigods and that kind of stuff that unfolded in history. And and there's all kinds of questions about how and why and what was going on in this time that something like this is even a possibility. Well, one thing we know, if you look at the verse, just breaking it down, is they saw something and they took What was driving these sons of God was lust. They saw and they took. This is very similar language to what happened to Eve in the garden. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was beautiful to the eyes, it was able to make one wise, and she took and ate of its fruit. And so that's how she fell. She was tantalized by this wonderful looking temptation, and so she took and ate, and the the, the uh, mankind plunged into sin and the human race was corrupted by that sin. When David was uh, up on his rooftop at a time when kings were supposed to go to war, he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. 
from the roof. He saw the woman bathing. She was very beautiful in appearance. Second Samuel 11, 2-5, David sent messengers and he took her and he was intimate with her and she was impregnated. And then that was David's downfall. He saw and he took. I don't have to tell you right now that we live in a generation that is being tempted by visual images like we have never seen before. It is such a rampant epidemic right now, not only outside the church, but inside the church, that it is a struggle untold by many, many individuals. Because these images are just a click away. You can get them on your phone, you can get them on your computer. And if you don't make up your mind to guard your eyes and to make a covenant with your eyes not to defile yourself, you're going to be in trouble. And once people open the door to pornography, it becomes such a stronghold in people's lives, it becomes something almost like a powerful drug. Well, we do know that men wrestle with uh, these visual images, and that's why I just want to encourage you ladies to dress appropriately. Men are very visual. They are stumbled very easily. It doesn't mean that you have to wrap your whole body up in cloth. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying about being reasonable so that you don't become a stumbling block to others. Very important in the church. And so they saw and they took. Whoever these sons of God are, they were captivated by the beauty of women. And they decided that they were going to take what they wanted and they did. And they took wives. So this is plural. It could be women. They took women or wives. Now you might be asking, okay, I like the second uh, idea. I like that this was the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. That sounds reasonable. It sounds palatable. But it's probably not the strongest argument. And I'll tell you why. Whenever you're looking at your Bible, the first thing that you want to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's just a basic rule of interpretation. Is there anywhere else where this is mentioned in your Bible? It's mentioned in three New Testament texts. Let's go there. 1 Peter is the first one. It's in the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. Go there. And I, I mentioned to you, 1 Peter chapter 3, that the earliest Jewish exegetes believed this view this is recorded in 1st Enoch, the book of Jubilees, this particular view that the sons of God are angels. It's recorded in the Septuagint. It's uh, recorded in the writings of Philo, Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The same position was held by early Christian writers such as Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen. However, I will tell you that the Sethite view that this is the line of Seth intermarrying with the Canaanites, came really from Chrysostom and Augustine, so moving into the uh, early uh, centuries of church history. And if you look at 1 Peter 3.18, here's what it says. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation. That word is caruso in Greek. It means to herald or proclaim. He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, 
who were once disobedient, verse 20, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Just mark that. God is patient. He doesn't want people to perish. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now when Jesus died, he went to this place where spirits are apparently are imprisoned and he made a proclamation to them. And here's the question. What was the proclamation? The Greek word caruso can be used to herald the, herald the gospel, but what determines the meaning is the context of the flow of the verses. And what uh, it could be going on here is that Jesus is actually making a proclamation to these spirits who tried to pollute the human race. Think with me for a second. In Genesis 3.15, God makes the proto-euangelion, the, the proto-evangelism, evangelism, and he says that a Messiah is coming that's going to bruise the serpent's head. Remember that, Genesis 3.15? Then in Genesis 5, we have this message that the Lord's going to come, and he's going to bring judgment, and he's going to uh, bring cleansing and, and uh, 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 judgment on mankind. Now, the enemy knows this. The enemy knows that his time is short, that his head's going to be crushed by the Messiah. What would you do if you were the enemy? Well, in all likelihood, you would try to stop the arrival of that Messiah. As I've mentioned to you in the past, this does happen in history. It happens through Egypt, through the Pharaoh, throwing the Hebrew male babies into the river. It happens through Assyria. It happens through Babylon. It happens through Medo-Persia. It happens under Haman when he tries to get the Jews wiped out and Esther steps up to the plate. It happened through Herod when he tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. It's happened through the Ottoman Empire and the uh, German Nazi Empire that tried to wipe out all the Jewish people. And we have to ask a question. This, this is part of what I want to get across to you this morning is there's really just a couple of ways to understand the world. You can understand the world as an accident that happened and we're just kind of nobody steering the ship and we're just going wherever. Or you can understand the world through a spiritual lens. If you understand the world through a spiritual lens, you understand that there's a battle. The battle's not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. There's a struggle going on. There is a literal devil, a literal enemy, a literal struggle. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour. There's a spiritual battle going on. And this would explain the history of Israel and why the people continue to try to destroy them. If you were the enemy, what would you do? Probably try to stop the Messiah from coming. There are some scholars embracing this view of angels as sons of God in Genesis 6 saying that this was some sort of attempt to corrupt the human race and keep that seed from coming down the line of Seth and so forth. But one thing that we have to remember when we look at Scripture is that the Scripture really doesn't say it was an attempt to corrupt. It just says that these sons of God saw these women and they basically seem to be driven by lust. If you go to Second Peter, just the next book to the right, here's another treatment of this time. Second Peter 2, look at verse 4. The context is false teachers who are driven by their sensual pleasures and they, the way of the truth is maligned by their behavior. Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. 
says, For if God, or since God, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live godly, ungodly thereafter. Notice in verse uh, 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned. He cast them into this place called Tartarus. It's one of the, it's a picture of dark judgment and imprisonment until the final judgment. Genesis chapter 6, you just taught the first part of it, of a three-part series here. And Pastor Michael, the one thing that's always intrigued me is in chapter 6, verse 6, where it says that the Lord uh, had lamented or regretted that he made uh, men. What, how, what does that mean, uh, biblically speaking? Well, Oscar, I think I said in this message that the Bible often uses anthropomorphic terminology. Um, and that's a big term, and it means human terms to describe God, because it's really the only way we can understand. Mm -hmm. However, I would say this, Oscar, that since we're made in the image of God, and emotions and um, feelings are part of that, of being made in God's image, and since in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, we can see that he was sorrowful, he lamented over Jerusalem, he cried at Lazarus's tomb, he wept over the city. He felt um, pain and grief and anger. You know, he was betrayed by Judas. Peter denied him. Um, you know, there was there were times when he he looked around a room. I remember one occasion in the Gospels, and he felt anger and was grieved simultaneously at the hardness of their hearts. So you start to look at God and you say, well, God's not emotionless. I don't know how this all works, Oscar, and I've been studying and teaching the Bible for almost 30 years. I don't understand always how this works, but I do know this, that one of the Psalms says that again and again, Israel pained the Holy One of Israel. They pained his heart. We know in the New Testament, it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So sometimes people say, well, uh, any pain or sorrow that would be attributed to God must be part of the incarnation. That is, Christ became human, so he had human emotions. However, then I see a verse where it says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Or I see a psalm that says they pained the Holy One of Israel before there was ever an incarnation. This is a thousand years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. So there's something to this, Oscar. And theologically, you know, we always want to be careful how we try to convey, um, you know, the character of God, if I could put it that way. However, I'm just going to take the text at face value. He was sorry. And I think the reason that he was sorry and grieved in his heart is because what man decided to do. Now, if he didn't want there'd ever be a human race. And I think there wouldn't have been eight people that got on that ark and it would have been over. But I think he was grieved at man's decision-making. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona.com 
or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.